Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. Good morning, everyone. Happy Father's Day, and I'd like to welcome our Bethlehem campus that's joining us live right now as well. I believe this year... The Lord wants us to rediscover the goodness of his will. The goodness of his intent. That was our word of the year as a church and intent and specifically intentionality in the areas of family, missions, and presence. Rediscovering the goodness of his intent. And that's also been informing our teaching series And the first series we did, the first half of the year basically was looking at rediscovering the goodness of his intent with our relationships. So that was the value of family. And today we're beginning, that was our As Intended series. If you missed that, you can go back online and watch it. I think there's a lot of good and challenging things in there with our relationships and this vision of human flourishing that Jesus gives, that we're actually created for relationship. And so today we're beginning a second series of the year, which is focusing on the goodness of God's intent in missions. And so for the next six weeks, we're going to be studying the book of Jonah. And really, as as we get into this, you'll see that we're kind of at the intersection of family and missions as we study the book of Jonah. So it really dovetails well. And so this is a summer series, and it's a summer series that's not only about family vacation, it's about family vocation. And the reason for that is that God is a father. We've seen that in our As Intended series. He's a father, appropriate for today, as Father's Day. He's a father who has fashioned us as a family to be growing into his likeness of agape love, but he hasn't made us as a family just to simply sit there and be loved on. He's made us with a family of, a family of purpose, a family with a task, a vocation in the world. And it's a calling and task to extend his glory through the whole of creation. And so I don't know if any of you missed last week's interview with the Missiacs, who are our supported missionary family in Kenya. If you missed that interview, you got to go watch it. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. It was interesting and just a lot of really powerful things that they were sharing from their experience in Kenya. And what better way to introduce what we're going to be looking at in this series. Now, we're going to be studying the book of Jonah, and I want to give you kind of a loving warning as we start this, because we're going to find some difficult things in this book. And if we don't find this book challenging, then I'm not preaching it right. Okay? So I'm just giving you advanced warning of that. The book of Jonah is actually not a children's book. Of course, there's great stuff in it for children, but really when we look at this, You know, when I say Jonah, the very first thing you're going to think of is what? The whale, the big fish, the Assyrians. Okay, that's advanced. 
Most people will think of, people who have no church background even will know, Jonah and the whale, Jonah and the big fish. And my home group tells me it made for a particularly good episode of VeggieTales, <laughs> this episode. But here's the thing. There's 47 verses that make up the book of Jonah, and the fish is in exactly three of them. So what happens when we read the other 93% of the book? And what we find out, actually, is when you study Jonah in the entirety of the book, you find this incredibly nuanced, powerful storytelling that shows us all about the heart of God, the mercy of God, his purposes for his people, but it also holds up a mirror to his people. That's us. That's the church around the world. And so I'm just going to give you the spoiler alert. It's not about the fish. (laughs) It's actually about Jesus. It's about his family. It's about the world that his family is called into. And the question that lies at the heart of this, the challenge that we're going to see in this book is this question, are we living our vocation as the people of God sent into the world to accomplish his purposes? What are those purposes? What are the things that hold us back from fulfilling his purposes? Well, those are some of the topics that we're going to see as we go through this book. We're going to start today with Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. So you can open up your Bibles to Jonah. It's about halfway through, and the words will also come up on the screen. It begins, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. If you've read through the prophetic writings of the Old Testament, You'll see right from these first verses, right from the first few words, that this is a book that is absolutely going to flip all of our expectations on their head, right from the start. And the first question, the first way you see this is when you begin to ask, what kind of book is this? Now, you know, if you turn to it in a physical Bible, this is in the section of the Bible that we call the prophets. And just like all of the books of the prophets, it begins with this formulaic statement, the word of the Lord came to the prophet. In this case, Jonah, son of Amittai. Prophets were God's mouthpieces. They spoke on God's behalf. And so you would naturally expect, if this was your first time reading it, and especially the original audience of this book, would have expected, just like all the other books of the prophets, that what we would go on to find in this book is the message of the prophet. Instead, what we get is a book about the prophet. And so this is a book that's unlike any other book in the, in, in the scriptures. It's unlike any of the other prophetic books. In fact, there's only five words of prophecy in the whole book. This is a book about Jonah. 
And what's interesting is, even though it's a book about the prophet, we know less about Jonah historically than almost all the other prophets. Even there's a whole book telling his story. All we're told is his name is Jonah, son of Amittai. And it's interesting, his name Jonah means dove, son of Amittai, which means son of faithfulness. Dove, son of faithfulness, which if you know the story at all, you realize this is a joke. This is intentionally a joke, okay? Because Jonah is the most faithless person in the whole book, including the animals. Even the cows repent in the book. And Jonah is the one named Dove, son of faithfulness. Now, we know that Jonah was a historical figure. He's mentioned also in the book of Kings. And we find out that he's from Galilee. He's actually from a town three miles away from Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, of course. And he prophesied to Jeroboam II, which is actually quite significant. We'll see that in another message. But I want you to notice a couple things just as we begin this book. Unlike all of the other prophetic books, you could turn, don't do it right now, but you could turn to any of the other books of prophecy and just at random. And what you'll typically find is that the word of the Lord came to during the reign of in such and such a place. And so you have all these historical details to situate you within a certain time and a specific place, right? Did you notice we have none of that in the book of Jonah? All we get is his name. There's no dates. There's not even any other names in the whole book except Jonah. And what's interesting is he mentions the king of Nineveh. And we may not realize that the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was the great empire, the great world power of the time. And so this is kind of like saying it's mentioning the president of the United States in today's world, but not telling us which one. You know? Not telling us the name. Now, doesn't that strike you as, a, a, as somewhat of an intentional omission on the part of the author? Why in the world would he avoid mentioning these types of details? And what it is, it's a hint that this story, this book, is not only a story about the historical Jonah. So our first point here is that Jonah, I think the best way to make sense of this is that Jonah is intended as a satirical parable. It's a satire told in parable about the people of God. And so you think, well, Ian, does that, are you saying it didn't really happen? I'm not saying that. But what, I'm, what I am trying to say, just as we begin this book, is that it's important to read every book of the Bible on its own terms, on the intent that the author put into it. And when we try and find out, well, what is the author intending with this book? If we start with the question of whether this is historical or not, we're actually asking I think we're starting with the wrong question. We're asking, we're approaching an ancient book with a modern mindset. Some say, people have argued about this a lot. I mean, you may be aware of that. Some say, well, if you don't believe that this happened, then you just, sorry, if you believe that this did happen, well, you just believe anything. And other people say, well, if you don't believe that this happened, then you don't believe anything. (laughs) But it's really the wrong question. Like I said, it's a modern question put to an ancient text. And the thing is, when you look at how this is written, 
and what the original audience would have received, it's not intended as a book of history, even if the author is talking about historical events. The history is not really what's in focus here. And when you start not with the question of whether this happened, but what the author is intending to tell us, then actually we begin to get to the deep and powerful and challenging message that we find in this little narrative. We find that there's, it's genius in form, in technique, in the style. There's this incredible symmetry of language and, and just like nuance and how things are expressed. And there's tons of humor throughout it, which is hard to see when you're treating it like a history book. When you treat it as literature, you see, wow, there's a lot of humor here. So Tim Mackey from the Bible Project encourages us to see it as almost like an ancient Saturday Night Live skit. You know how, you know, I mean, you may hate that show, I get it, but one of the things that they do is satire. They will poke fun at popular culture, at politics, at all that stuff, to make some sort of point. And the suggestion is that Jonah is doing a similar thing, that it's using this story of Jonah, it's laughing, it's making fun of him, it's presenting him as this horrible character. I mean, Jonah is, he's cowardly, he's petulant, he's self-centered, he only cares about people that look like him and believe like him. He's really one of the most unlikable characters in the whole Bible, (laughs) really. And yet, the story's written in such a way that once you read it and you get to the end and you're laughing at him and you're ridiculing him and you say, oh, that Jonah, and then you start to realize, wait, hold on. <laughs> I think I might be Jonah. <laughs> right? And so this is a story that kind of messes you, messes with you like that. And scholars point out that the other thing is so it's satire, but it's also in a term in the style of a parable functions in a very similar way to how Jesus told parables. We see a lot of similarities with this book, specifically actually the prodigal son. And we'll see that as we go through the story that that Jesus may actually have been drawing on the book of Jonah and paralleling it in his own story of the prodigal son. But notice some of the things that are similar. So if you think of any of Jesus's parables, he rarely gives us names. Only one time does he ever give us a name of a person. He rarely gives us specific places unless there's a particular symbolism to them. So he says Gehenna, which was a place, but it's, a, it's symbolism of the place of judgment. And so Jesus uses these innocent seeming little stories and, you know, there's jokes in them and there's, you know, there's planks in people's eyes and there's shepherds doing stupid things. And then all of a sudden you realize, hold on, that's me. <laughs> He's talking about me. And so it's a powerful, memorable way of communicating truth. And so in verse one, we saw that the author, you know, begins with this formula of all the prophetic books. And in verse two, he does something that's completely unexpected. He tells Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach repentance. Preach to them. Actually, we're not told right here what to preach. He just says, go preach to them. You say, well, so what? Well, I want to give you a picture to help us get into how exactly this would come across to the original audience, all right? So imagine you're in the middle of World War II, and 
you're having your quiet time and an angel appears before you and says, go fly into Berlin and preach on the streets that the Nazi regime is coming to an end next month. And the angel goes away. Now, how do you think you would receive that invitation? (laughs) You'd book it to Tarshish. Yeah. (laughs) Now, there's a few things you might feel, okay? So you might at first feel fear. Because the reality is, to go into Berlin, to the capital of this warring enemy empire, and declare its destruction is a dangerous mission. You're going to be quickly arrested. You're going to be sent to a concentration camp. You're almost certainly going to be killed. So you might feel fear. Another thing you might feel is this is a complete waste of time. As if they're going to listen, right? As if I'm going to go to Berlin and all of a sudden Hitler is going to repent. And, you know, it seems ridiculous, right? So you might feel either of those things. And that's exactly what the author is trying to get the audience to feel. Just, you know, that picture brings it into our moral universe. This enemy that was just pure evil to the people reading this book. And so you would think that Jonah is running away for one of these very reasonable reasons. And yet, here's another way that the author surprises us. Neither of these is the reason why Jonah runs. And here's where our translation, it, it masks a little bit of the ambiguity that you find in the original Hebrew. Our translation that we read this morning, it says, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up to me. But when you look at the original words, it's hard to translate, which is why, you know, you have to make decisions translating that you inevitably leave some things out. Just like if you told a joke in English, it's very hard most of the time to translate it into another language. It just is. But here's the thing. When you read the Hebrew, when we read the English, it emphasizes the evil. And when we read that, we assume that it's God's anger that's in focus. But when you read the Hebrew, it can also mean God's concern. God wanting to warn them of impending doom. And so the message translation, which you may not realize the message translation was translated directly from the original languages, and it's a paraphrase, of course, but I like how it captures this. It says, preach to them, they're in a bad way, and I can't ignore it any longer. You see the difference there? Now, now, both of those are there. It's not either or. I think both of those are there. I think it's an intentional ambiguity. But given what we go on to read in the rest of the story, I think this reading makes a lot of sense. Because now we have an even bigger problem, all right, if you're following this. Because Jonah doesn't run away because he's afraid. He doesn't run away because he thinks it's not going to be effective. He runs away because he fears it might be effective. He begins to think, well, what if they do listen? So what if your preaching in Berlin actually worked? And what if now the Nazis are offered a peace treaty rather than the 
punishment and destruction that they deserve. The punishment and destruction that they've let out on other nations, and now they're going to be offered peace? Now imagine you're a Jewish person. How would you feel about this? And so here we have Jonah being sent to an enemy city. And by the way, he is the only prophet of all the prophets to be sent to a foreign nation. Some of the other prophets had messages for the nations, but Jonah is the only one who's sent to one. But not only that, not only any nation, but Jonah, who's a prophet from the northern kingdom, he is sent to preach to the very empire that had wiped out the 10 northern tribes of Israel. So there's a lot of parallel, actually, between these two pictures. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. They were absolutely brutal. They actually, believe it or not, they invented crucifixion. These are the guys, you know, they have that infamy. They would skin their enemies alive. I mean, this is, it's rough. <laughs> and, and so the question here is, God's concerned about them? God wants to warn them? of impending judgment. And so I hope you can begin to get a feel for just how kind of morally shocking and potentially offensive this mission is. And maybe it gives us a little bit of empathy for what's going on in Jonah. Do you see now why Jonah runs? Jonah's not running from Nineveh. He's running from God. And where does he run to? So this is where we get more jokes, more satire. Nineveh was east of Israel. Tarshish is the furthest western seaport of the Mediterranean. This is actually the Straits of Gibraltar, which Selene and I were just there. We could see it. It was kind of cool. This is where he was headed. And that, to them, was the edge, literally the edge of the world. They had no idea what was beyond that. And so in our vernacular, that would be, you know, Jonah caught the next plane to Timbuktu. And (laughs) he's not only going west instead of east, but God tells him, arise, and yet we're told twice that Jonah goes down. He goes down to Joppa. Then it says he goes down into the ship. Later on, we find out that he's asleep in the hull of the ship, (laughs) And then, next thing, he's at the bottom of the ocean, and then he's, at the bell- he's in the belly of a fish. Down. And so, do you see what's happening here? This is more than just a description of events. This is sophisticated literary devices at work. And verse 3 in particular, I don't know if you noticed in that reading, verse 3, there's these three repetitions. It's a Hebrew kind of form of poetry. It's inverted parallelism. There's three things repeated. It says he went down, down. He went to Tarshish, fleeing from the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord. And so the author, you don't repeat yourself in writing like that. That's what your English teacher will tell you. Don't repeat the same words in your writing. It's bad writing unless you're doing it for an effect. What's the effect? What is the symbolism that we're being drawn to here? And I want to ask first, what is the symbol of the sea? And the next point here is that the sea was the symbol of chaos. 
If you draw your mind back, I think there's, a, there's something going on here where he's drawing our attention to Genesis, the creation story. If you remember Genesis 1, what is there before God brings things into order? It says the spirit was hovering over the waters. This is what happens. This is the chaos before the creation, the ordering of God. It's the disorder out of which God brings order, out of which he brings being. And that's why whenever you encounter the sea in the Old Testament, it's usually a picture of chaos, of disobedience towards God, of this uncontrollable kind of darkness. And so even at the end of the book, when you read Revelation, where does the beast come out of? The sea. This is what it represents. And so, again, here's another hint that there's a lot more going on here than just the story of Jonah. If he's drawing our attention to Genesis 1, it means he's telling a story about all of us. God calls Jonah and gives him a task, a commission. And in Genesis, what do we read? God makes humanity and he calls them to a task. And what was God's task for humanity? Well, we read it in Genesis 1, 27 and 28. He creates man and woman in his image. And then he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So God, our next point is that the creator cultivates order out of chaos. And then he tells us to do the same. He makes order out of chaos and he tells us to do the same. This is what theologians call the cultural mandate. We are made to be cultivators of the creation. We're the gardeners of the earth. And I don't know if you noticed, when God makes the creation, it's not the whole world that's a garden. It's just Eden. It means that he left work undone to partner with humanity to complete. He says, go out and generate yourselves. Wherever there's disorder, bring it to order. Wherever there's wilderness, bring cultivation. Wherever there's chaos, bring good governance. He's telling them to carry on the work of the creator in the creation. And the Lord calls Jonah to his task, and we see that it's an extension of that same vocation, that same calling. And this is always how we see God working. This is God's MO. Because you might ask, well, why does God call prophets? Why does he use people? Well, God's way of working is that God's people are called to accomplish God's purposes. I think the answer of why he uses us, why doesn't he just do it himself, is the same answer that any good father would give. We're here on Father's Day. Any good father knows the best thing actually for your kids to grow up is not for you to just do everything for them, right? Sometimes it's hard to let go and let them because you know they're going to make mistakes and you're going to, you know, you could do it a lot quicker than them most of the times, but if they're going to learn, they're going to have to contribute. And so it's far better for their growth, it's far better for their dignity, for their personhood, to allow them to play a role in completing the task. It's great, you know, you can start that from as, as young as anything. You can give them little ways to help, and you see how kids kind of rise to the occasion. And it gives them a sense of, yeah, I love to help dad. Even if it's not super helpful. <laughs> right? But that's what's good for their growth. That's good fathering and mothering. 
And I think as we're talking about missions, we're going to get to this in other episodes of this season of the, the series, but this is actually, ha- it has huge implications for how we do missions in the world as well. Not just doing things for people, but equipping and empowering partners in relationship around the world to rise up in their context. So, okay. Isn't Jonah's message all about destruction? How can this be the work of creation? How does this fit with the vocation to cultivate the earth? When we read the Hebrew, that word evil that's translated could also be their calamity, their trouble, their disaster. In other words, it's not only their, that they're evil, but it's that God is concerned with the evil, with the calamity that's going to fall on them. He wants to prevent it. And what's really interesting to me is that the, that word that we translated evil in this, the root of it is actually to tend a flock. It has to do with shepherding. It's really interesting. And so you see, God is wanting to shepherd this wayward people. He wants to protect them from falling off the cliff that they're headed towards. And so you see that Jonah's mission is regenerative. He's calling order out of chaos. It's, it is a message of destruction, but it's a warning of love to save them from destruction, to avoid that destruction. And so the next point here is that the Father's heart is always to turn the creation towards life. Wherever there's disorder, wherever there's destruction, his heart is to turn it back towards order, towards life. And we have, this has to take a lot of explaining for us to understand this, but Jonah understood this right away. And we learned that for a fact in chapter four, because he says, God, this is exactly what I was afraid of, that you were going to try and save these people. Jonah recognizes this vocation, and that is exactly why he runs. Now, turn your mind to Genesis 3 which is the fall of humanity into sin. What is really happening when Adam and Eve choose to disobey God, to sin? They're not only breaking a rule, they're rejecting the vocation that God has put on them. And that is the thing that sets the whole world off into this path of destruction. It's not just the breaking of a rule, it is that, but it's that breaking that rule was actually choosing a completely different path of life. They had the option between the vocation of God to be images of the creator or the choice that the serpent offered, which is to be gods in their own image. And so what we see are these two different trajectories of life, east and west, up and down, these opposite directions. And it says in Genesis 3 that Eve saw that the tree was good for fruit, that it was pleasing to the eyes, and that it was good to make one wise. And she took and ate and gave some to Adam. And so you see the choosing of a path. Choosing of this is the direction that will lead to my ultimate good my ultimate pleasure, and my ultimate wisdom. This is my path. And God warned them that at the end of that path, 
could be nothing but death. Death is the end of every path that is not the face of God. And here's where I want to bring this home to us. That Jonah was running just like all humanity has been running. And why do we run? It's because we think that we have a better vision of life than what God has offered us. We think that God is the ultimate killjoy in the sky who wants to shut down your party, who wants to rain on your parade, who wants you to just be stuck doing this boring life of bland obedience. And you say, God, this way looks better. This way looks more attractive. In fact, it looks wiser. (laughs) That doesn't seem good to me, God. There's a direction, a different direction that seems good to me, that seems delightful to me. And so I'm going to go that direction instead, if you don't mind. I'm going to use my money that way, if you don't mind. And he seems to think, if you try and get inside his head, he seems to think that as long as he keeps the law, it'll all pan out. You know? He goes on the ship. He doesn't stow away on the ship. He, it's interesting, it mentions that he paid his fare. Who cares, right? He paid his fare. He's being honest, right? He's, and he's going to Tarshish. Well, that's far away. God, you sent me to the nations. Don't the people in Tarshish need the gospel too? And so I think this is generally how people, I was having a conversation with a friend who's not a believer recently. And we, after many times together, we finally got into a conversation about beliefs and our values and faith. And he said, well, you know, I just think if I'm a good person and I, you know, do my best, I think it'll all pan out. You know, God understands, right? And I think it's a pretty standard way of thinking. And that seems to be how Jonah's thinking. But here's the thing. This book is not focused on the pagan Gentiles. It's focused on Jonah who is a picture of the people of God. And I think the mirror that it holds up to us is that, hey, we often think like this too. I often think like this. Well, I'm not doing anything sinful. You know, he didn't stow away. He paid his fare. He went abroad. And actually, what's interesting is, notice, it doesn't immediately lead to calamity. Actually, things kind of fall in place for him, right? He goes to Joppa. He just happens to find a ship going to Tarshish, which is what he wanted. Wow, God, an open door. Thank you for giving me the resources to make this trip happen, God. I'm going to preach your word in Tarshish. (laughs) And he's so at peace with it that, you know, in the next episode, we find out he's sleeping in the bottom of the ship. Totally at peace, right? think what this is telling us is we can spend our lives as Christians avoiding what we know is the call of God and yet not breaking the rules, doing our own thing, really. And actually, we can be completely at peace with that. Completely at peace with ourselves while we head in the complete opposite direction to where God has called us. And I want to I plead with you all, please don't let 
inner peace be the only thing that directs you in your life? Because we can make peace with all sorts of things. And like Jonah, yeah, like Jonah, you may feel as peaceful of a dove, as a dove. The question is, are you being faithful? Jonah felt the peace inside, but he was not being faithful. Faithfulness. So Jonah, Jonah went down. Sorry, mixing all my my J's. Jonah went down to Joppa. <laughs> And the things kind of line up for him. And maybe he was thinking, well, God, if you really don't want me to go to Tarshish, well, just shut the door. But the door was open, so I guess I'm going to go. And here's the thing. If God's already told you not to go through a door, don't expect that he's going to try and shut it when you're determined to go through it. Be faithful to what he's already told you. And there's lots of things that we know in the word that he's already told us. And just because the doors keep opening, it doesn't mean you're in God's will about it. And so there's kind of a, there's a little bit of a a scary element to this that, hey, am I actually hiding from some area of God's presence in my life and running the other way unaware? Or maybe I'm aware, but I've made peace with it. And when it says the presence of the Lord, the, the literal translation is the face of the Lord. And so I want to ask you this question. Is there an area of your life where you're running from the face of God? Running from his presence? That part of your life that you say, okay, God, I'll follow the rules. I'll attend church. I'll pay my taxes. And, but I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm not working on that part of me. I am not forgiving that person. I'm not caring for those people. Like we said, a lot of times we see God's fatherhood as kind of trying to shut down our parade and wanting to squash it. And where we get that sometimes is, I think, the examples that we sometimes see. Uh, And I think a challenge that I feel this Father's Day that I've been feeling really strongly with my two little girls is that I know that as they grow up, when they hear the term Father God, it's going to be impacted to some extent by how they've seen me be a father. And man, is, that's, a heavy, that's a heavy thing to feel. And yet, I find so often, as I begin to ask, you know, live with that realization, it's shifted my course a lot of times in how I talk to them or treat them or deal with them because I'm realizing, you know what? I'm representing fatherhood here and I want them to know the character of God to the greatest you know, extent that I can live that out. I want them to see that in me. And so, Am I fathering in a way that will give my kids an accurate picture of who God is? Now, I put that to any of us who are fathers or desire to be fathers, or you play a fathering role in someone's life, that that's a good question to, to ask ourselves. Am I fathering in such a way that my kids will be able to see the heart of God through me? Because here's the truth. His intent for us is good. 
and he's made every person for relationship with him. That was our whole series as intended. And so because of that, he sends us into the world because many people do not have relationship with him. He's not sending us into the world just to pronounce judgment and condemnation. If anything, it's a warning that the path that you're on, it's leading not towards this good, wonderful life that you think it is. It's leading towards more disorder, more destruction, and ultimately, God says, towards death. Repent. Turn around. Turn towards the face of God because he is life. He is love. And even though we may not be able to grasp it, when he offers us his life and his love, his relationship, he's offering us a kind of life that is fuller, richer, deeper, more beautiful and fulfilling than we could ever possibly imagine. It's just that we can't see it yet. And I love, I'm going to end with a, an illustration. It was Tim Mackey that just really arrested my heart. He's talking about being the father of a toddler, and I can relate to that in my current stage of life. And, you know, toddlers, you, you're typically saving them from doom 10 times a day as they climb on things and they jump on things, and especially boys. And he tells the fact that every time they're walking as a family, his son will just run up the street. And if it's a busy street, it's really dangerous. And he'll say, son, stop. Turn around. Come back. If you keep going that way, you're going to get hit by a car. Now, how does the toddler feel about that? They're like, dad, why are you stopping the fun? I just want to run over there. And so the toddler thinks he's running for his life. And the reality is he's running from his life. That if only he return to the father, even though he's not able to comprehend that the father actually has his best at heart, his best in mind. You're honest. I want to put that to you today. If there's an area of your life right now where you don't want, you're honest, you don't want God to put his finger on because you think you've got a better vision, a better way. Maybe you've never turned your heart towards him. He's inviting you today. Turn back. Turn back. I'm not here to rain on your parade. I'm here to give you life in abundance, life everlasting. Will you come? But to get there, we have to let go of our own vision of life. You have to let it go and turn around. And as Jesus promises, it's when we lose our life that we find it. It's when we lose our life that we find it. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.